Section 1 of The Rustlers of Pecos County This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas. The Rustlers of Pecos County by Zane Gray. Chapter 1, Part 1. Vaughn Steele and Russ Siddle. In the morning, after breakfasting early, I took a turn up and down the main street of Sanderson, made observations, and got information likely to serve me at some future day, and then I returned to the hotel ready for what might happen. The stagecoach was there, and already full of passengers. This stage did not go to Linrock, but I had found that another one left from that point three days a week. Several cowboy broncos stood hitched to a railing, and a little farther down were two buckboards, with horses that took my eye. These probably were the teams Colonel Sampson had spoken of to George Wright. As I strolled up, both men came out of the hotel. Wright saw me, and making an almost imperceptible sign to Sampson, walked toward me. "'You're the cowboy Russ?' he asked. I nodded and looked him over. By day he made as striking a figure as I had noted by night but the light was not generous to his dark face. "'Here's your pay,' he said, handing me some bills. "'Miss Sampson won't need you out at the ranch any more.' "'What do you mean? This is the first I've heard about that.' "'Sorry, kid, that's it,' he said abruptly. "'She just gave me the money, told me to pay you off. You needn't bother to speak with her about it.' He might as well have said, just as politely, that my seeing her even to say good-bye was undesirable. As my luck would have it, the girls appeared at the moment, and I went directly up to them, to be greeted in a manner I was glad George Wright could not help but see. In Miss Sampson's smile, and good morning, Russ, there was not the slightest discoverable sign that I was not to serve her indefinitely. It was, as I had expected, she knew nothing of Wright's discharging me in her name. "'Miss Sampson,' I said in dismay, "'what have I done? Why did you let me go?' She looked astonished. "'Russ, I don't understand you.' "'Why did you discharge me?' I went on, trying to look heartbroken. "'I haven't had a chance yet. I wanted so much to work for you, Miss Sally. What have I done? Why did she discharge me?' "'I did not,' declared Miss Sampson, her dark eyes lighting. "'But look here. Here's my pay,' I went on, exhibiting the money. "'Mr. Wright just came to me, said you sent this money.' that you wouldn't need me out at the ranch. It was Miss Sally, then, who uttered a little exclamation. Miss Sampson seemed scarcely to have believed what she had heard. My cousin Mr. Wright said that? I nodded vehemently. At this juncture, Wright strode before me, practically thrusting me aside. Come, girls, let's walk a little before we start, he said gaily. I'll show you Sanderson. Wait, please, Miss Sampson replied, looking directly at him. "'Cousin George, I think there's a mistake. Perhaps a misunderstanding. Here's the cowboy I've engaged, Mr. Russ. He declares you gave him money, told him I discharged him.' "'Yes, cousin, I did,' he replied, his voice rising a little. There was a tinge of red in his cheek. "'We, you don't need him out at the ranch. We've any number of boys. I just told him that. Let him down easy. Didn't want to bother you.' Certainly, it was that George Wright had made a poor reckoning. First, she showed utter amaze, then distinct disappointment, and then she lifted her head 
with a kind of haughty grace. She would have addressed him then, had not Colonel Sampson come up. "'Papa, did you instruct Cousin George to discharge Russ?' she asked. "'I sure didn't,' declared the Colonel with a laugh. "'George took that upon his own hands. "'Indeed, I'd like my cousin to understand that I'm my own mistress. "'I've been accustomed to attending to my own affairs, and shall continue doing so. "'Russ, I'm sorry you've been treated this way. "'Please, in future, take your orders from me.' "'Then I'm to go to Limrock with you?' I asked. "'Assuredly. Ride with Sally and me today, please.' She turned away with Sally, and they walked toward the first buckboard. Colonel Sampson found a grim enjoyment in Wright's discomfiture. "'Diane's like her mother was, George,' he said. "'You've made a bad start with her.' Here Wright showed a manifestation of the Sampson temper, and I took him to be a dangerous man with unbridled passions. "'Russ,' Here's my own talk to you, he said, hard and dark, leaning toward me. Don't go to Linrock. Say, Mr. Wright, I blustered, for all the world like a young and frightened cowboy. If you threaten me, I'll have you put in jail. Both men seemed to have received a slight shock. Wright hardly knew what to make of my boyish speech. Are you going to Limrock? he asked thickly. I eyed him with an entirely different glance from my other fearful one. I should smile, was my reply, as caustic as the most reckless cowboys, and I saw him shake. Colonel Sampson laid a restraining hand upon Wright. Then they both regarded me with undisguised interest. I sauntered away. George, your temper will do for you some day, I heard the colonel say. You'll get in bad with the wrong man sometime. Hello, here are Joe and Brick. Mention of these fellows engaged my attention once more. I saw two cowboys, one evidently getting his name from his brick-red hair. They were the roistering type, hard drinkers, devil-may-care fellows, packing guns and wearing bold fronts, a kind that the rangers always called four flushes. However, as the ranger's standard of nerve was high, there was room left for cowboys like these to be dangerous to ordinary men. The little one was Joe and directly Reich spoke to him, he turned to look at me, and his thin mouth slanted down as he looked. Brick eyed me, too, and I saw that he was heavy, not a hard-riding cowboy. Here right at the start were three enemies for me, Wright and his cowboys. But it did not matter, under any circumstances, there would have been friction between such men and me. I believed there might have been friction right then, had not Miss Sampson called for me. "'Get our baggage, Russ,' she said. I hurried to comply, and when I had fetched it out, Wright and the cowboys had mounted their horses. Colonel Sampson was in the one buckboard with two men. I had not before observed, and the girls were in the other. The driver of this one was a tall, lanky, tow-headed youth, growing like a Texas weed. We had not any too much room in the buckboard, but that fact was not going to spoil the ride for me.' We followed the leaders through the main street, out into the open, onto a wide, hard-packed road, showing years of travel. It headed northwest. To our left rose the range of low, bleak mountains I had noted yesterday, and to our right sloped the mesquite-patched sweep of ridge and flat. The driver pushed his team to a fast trot, which gate surely covered ground rapidly. We were close behind Colonel Sampson, who from his vehement gestures, 
must have been engaged in very earnest colloquy with his companions. The girls behind me, now that they were nearing the end of the journey, manifested less interest in the ride, and were speculating upon Linrock and what it would be like. Occasionally I asked the driver a question, and sometimes the girls did likewise, but to my disappointment the ride seemed not to be the same as that of yesterday. Every half-mile or so we passed a ranch house, and as we traveled on these ranches grew further apart, until, twelve or fifteen miles out of Sanderson, they were so widely separated that each one appeared alone on the wild range. We came to a stream that ran north, and I was surprised to see a goodly volume of water. It evidently flowed down from the mountain far to the west. Tufts of grass were well scattered over the sandy ground, but it was high and thick, and considering the immense area in sight, there was grazing for a million head of stock. We made three stops in the forenoon, one at a likely place to water the horses, the second at a chuck wagon belonging to cowboys who were riding after stock, and a third at a small cluster of adobe and stone houses, constituting a hamlet the driver called Samson, named after the colonel. From that point on to Limrock, there were only a few ranches, each one controlling great acreage. Early in the afternoon, from a ridgetop, we sighted Linrock, a green path in the mass of gray. For the barons of Texas, it was indeed a fair sight. But I was more concerned with its remoteness from civilization than its beauty. At that time in the early seventies, when the vast western third of Texas was a wilderness, the pioneer had done wonders to settle there and establish places like Linrock. As we rolled swiftly along, the whole sweeping range was dotted with cattle, and farther on, within a few miles of town, there were droves of horses that brought enthusiastic praise from Miss Sampson and her cousin. "'Plenty of room here for the long rides,' I said, waving a hand at the gray-green expanse. "'Your horses won't suffer on this range.' And her cousin for once seemed speechless. "'That's the ranch,' said the driver, pointing with his whip. It needed only a glance for me to see that Colonel Sampson's ranch was on a scale fitting the country. The house was situated on the only elevation around Linrock, and it was not high, no more than a few minutes' walk from the edge of town. It was a low, flat-roofed structure, made of red adobe bricks, and covered what appeared to be fully an acre of ground. All was green about it except where the fence corrals and numerous barns or sheds showed gray and red. Wright and the cowboys disappeared ahead of us in the cottonwood trees. Colonel Sampson got out of the buckboard and waited for us. His face wore the best expression I had seen upon it yet. There was warmth and love, and something that approached sorrow or regret. His daughter was agitated, too. I got out and offered my seat, which Colonel Sampson took. It was scarcely a time for me to be required or even noticed at all, and I took advantage of it and turned toward the town. Ten minutes of leisurely walking brought me to the shady outskirts of Linrock, and I entered the town with mingled feelings of curiosity, eagerness, and expectation. The street I walked down was not a main one. There were small red houses among oak and cottonwoods. I went clear through to the other side, probably more than half a mile, I crossed a number of intersecting streets, met children, nice-looking women, and more than one dusty-booted man. Halfway back this street, I turned at right angles 
and walked up several blocks till I came to a tree-bordered plaza. On the far side opened a broad street, which for all its horses and people had a sleepy look. I walked on, alert, trying to take in everything, wondering if I would meet Steele, wondering how I would know him if we did meet. But I believed I could have picked that ranger out of a thousand strangers, though I had never seen him. Presently the residence gave place to buildings fronting right upon the stone sidewalk. I passed a grain store, a hardware store, a grocery store, then several unoccupied buildings and a vacant corner. The next block, aside from the rough fronts of the crude structures, would have done credit to a small town even in eastern Texas. Here was evidence of business consistent with any prosperous community of two thousand inhabitants. The next block on both sides of the street was a solid row of saloons, resorts, hotels. Saddled horses stood hitched all along the sidewalk in two long lines, with a buckboard and team here and there breaking the continuity. This block was busy and noisy. From all outside appearances, Linrock was no different from other frontier towns, and my expectations were scarcely realized. As the afternoon was waning, I retraced my steps and returned to the ranch. The driver boy, whom I had heard called Dick, was looking for me, evidently at Miss Sampson's order, and he led me up to the house. It was even bigger than I had conceived from a distance, and so old that the adobe bricks were worn smooth by rain and wind. I had a glimpse in at several doors as we passed by. There was comfort here that spoke eloquently of many a freighter's trips from Del Rio. For the sake of the young ladies, I was glad to see things a little short of luxurious for that part of the country. At the far end of the house, Dick conducted me to a little room, very satisfactory indeed to me. I asked about the bunkhouses for the cowboys, and he said they were full to overflowing. Colonel Sampson has a big outfit, huh? Reckon he has, replied Dick. Don't know how many cowboys. They're always coming and going. I ain't acquainted with half of them much movement of stock these days stocks always moving he replied with a queer look rustlers but he did not follow up that look with the affirmative i expected lively place i hear linrock is ain't so lively as sanderson but it's bigger yes i heard it was fellow down there was talking about two cowboys who were arrested sure i heard all about it joe bean and brick higgins they belong here but they ain't here much I did not want Dick to think me over-inquisitive, so I turned the talk into other channels. It appeared that Miss Sampson had not left any instructions for me, so I was glad to go with Dick to supper, which we had in the kitchen. Dick informed me that the cowboys prepared their own meals down at the bunks, and as I had been given a room at the ranch house, he supposed I would get my meals there, too. After supper, I walked all over the grounds had a look at the horses in the corrals, and came to the conclusion that it would be strange if Miss Sampson did not love her new home, and if her cousin did not enjoy her sojourn here. From a distance, I saw the girls approaching with Wright, and not wishing to meet them, I sheared off. When the sun had set, I went down to the town with the intention of finding Steele. This task, considering I dared not make inquiries, and must approach him secretly, might turn out to be anything but easy. End of section one.